Well, I am so pumped that Jennifer brought a board game uh, because I'm not the only one talking about toys this morning. I wanted to start this morning by reminding you about a toy you might have seen. Maybe you even had one. It's an old toy called the Viewmaster. Did anyone have one of these? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Some shout outs. This is the original virtual reality. I don't know if you guys recognize that. Here's what you do. If you don't know what this is, you put that little disc in the viewfinder, the viewmaster, and then you take that orange lever as you look through it and you go, you know, and it switches to the next one and it's like you're immersed in this scene, okay, this picture of what's going on. Well, you may not have realized it, but as we've studied the book of Colossians in the New Testament up until this point, which we're on kind of the downhill slide just a couple more weeks in Colossians, we've been looking at different scenes through the lens of the theme of Colossians, which is the lordship of Jesus Christ. So you pick up that viewfinder, the viewmaster, and you go, you put it up to your face, you're looking through the lens of the lordship of the Jesus Christ to see the world in a completely new and different way. And then Paul has walked us in this letter through different scenes. We started with the first scene in chapter one about the cosmic epic reality of Jesus as creator God, right? He created everything. He sustains everything. And then we went, and we switched over to the next scene, which is where Jesus is the savior of the world by what he did on the cross for the salvation of people from their sins, okay? And how he established a church to not only tell the story of Jesus to the world, but also to grow in knowledge and maturity in Jesus so that God would be glorified. And then we get into chapter two and it was like, switch to the next scene. And this is where things started to get kind of interesting because then all of a sudden you see predators. You see people lurking with these false gospels of legalism and mysticism that maybe you need to work for your salvation or maybe you need to have a special experience with God before you can be saved. But it says in this picture, no, when we look through the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we see that's not it at all. Jesus saved us by his grace, right? Our faith was a response to that. And so we don't work for God's acceptance. We work from God's acceptance, right? And so that's how that works. And then we went into the next scene, which is chapter three, where things got way more personal. Now we weren't just looking out there. We're looking at ourselves. And in chapter three, we see not just ourselves, but ourselves in relationship to other people, in particular, other believers, and how we have an old way of life that we need to put down and put away and put to death. But there's a new way of life to live into because Jesus is Lord. And so we've seen up until this point that looking through the lens of the Lordship of Jesus changes the way we see everything. First, we recognize that when our vertical relationship with God is made right, when we've been rescued and redeemed because of our faith in Jesus, saved by his grace, that that ought to transform all of our horizontal relationships as well. And so here we are in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter four, verse one. And we're gonna be looking at three more scenes through our view master of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. These scenes that define relationships and how God intended us to live, his design and his desire for us to live in these relationships so that not we would have to carry the burden of it, but so that we would actually flourish as humans living his way of life. So 
Each scene will be familiar to you, but I hope that they'll sort of take on a new light and you'll be able to sort of see where you know, the gaps are, where you can actually take steps into living out of the lordship of Jesus Christ as you see the world through that lens. That lens, by the way, as we go back to this theme of Colossians, where Jesus is Lord of everything, it means to say that Jesus isn't just one of many important things in our lives. He is the supreme thing in our lives. He is over everything. He is central to everything. So as we walk through these relationship scenes, you may say to yourself, I'm not in that kind of relationship. But all of these scenes tell one bigger story. And even if you're not seeing the relevancy to your life today, there's still something to learn about a life where Christ is central. Okay, so scene one, let's just start together in verse 18 with scene one, a Christ-centered marriage. Chapter three of Colossians verse 18 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands... Love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Okay, now I'm going to read this again because I think when I said that second word, half the room was like, I'm out. (laughs) Okay, let me read this again and just stick with us, okay? Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Now, why do we have that kind of reaction this like natural gag reflex to the word submit. We gotta address this, right? If we wanna figure out what is going on with God's design and desire for us to live a flourishing life in relationships, then why are we gonna reject his way by saying submit? Not me, I don't think so, that's not it at all. Well, most of us have this idea that submitting is something that makes someone less than the other, something that makes someone devalued. But what I want to show you is that actually in historical context and even just the whole idea of God and how he establishes relationships and who he is, God's telling the opposite story. Everybody in the world today would say submit means that you're less than, but God is saying, no, that's not it at all. In fact, if I could just take an aside and then jump back into the verse, God himself is an example of this to us in the Trinity. What we know is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. See, God in all three persons are completely equal, yet we see examples of especially the Son submitting to the Father so that God's will could be accomplished. So this is not something that's just God throwing onto us. This is something that God lives out first and then invites us into so that we can experience the fullness of life as he intended it. But we think that submit is just devaluing. That's how most people in our world see it today. Well, William Barclay is a historical theologian. He, he says uh, this about the history. He paints kind of the historical picture for us. He wrote this, a woman is a thing. She was the possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She has no legal right whatsoever. A husband could divorce his wife for any cause, while a wife had no rights whatsoever in the initiation of divorce. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity, but her husband could go out as much as he chose, could enter into as many relationships outside of marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. 
both under Jewish and under Greek laws and custom, all the privileges belonged to the husband and all the duties to the wife. So to put duties for both the husband and the wife side by side in this letter was not to devalue women. It was actually humanity's first giant leap forward to humanizing and valuing women the way God does. So the opposite of what you think is happening is happening. Paul is elevating women in the picture of marriage. It's interesting to me just reading this history about what was afforded a man, the privileges afforded a man in relationships back then, they were not at all valuing of women. But what's interesting is that relationships outside of Christ in today's world don't actually value a spouse, a woman or husband either. And we would go, well, submit, that's old school. That's the Bible way of doing things. I'm not gonna do that. That's the, we're so much more advanced now. But if you look around at what people are doing in the world today in their relationships, they are longing, people are longing without Christ for the ability to have as many relationships outside of marriage as they like and incur no stigma. And they wanna apply that to the husband and the wife. And so current cultural relationships aren't valuing the wife or the husband any more than what was in the past. They're actually devaluing the wife and the husband more than ever. That's the way our world is going. But God tells us so much better of a picture, so much better of a story. So what does it mean? What is this personal responsibility, this duty that each spouse can take in order to live out a Christ-centered marriage? Well, Starting in verse 18, the wife's duty is to submit to her husband. So let's just talk about what that means. This word submit is the word hupotasso in the Greek. Don't, probably doesn't mean anything to you except to what it actually means, which is to arrange under. You probably recognize the, the prefix hupo. It's like when we say something is hyper, like it's really amped up, it's high, it's big, or something was hypo, which is like it's under, right? It's lower. So here we go. This is the word hupo tasso, meaning to arrange under. But it wasn't about status. It was about teamwork. It was actually a military term that was used to define, to describe a unit of battle, a unit of formation marching into battle where one person in tactical terms is saying to the other, hey, I got your back. While the other is saying, I'm willing to take the front line. And so in a Christian marriage, a Christ-centered marriage, this is how this relationship works. It's an equal unit moving forward into battle where one spouse says, I'm willing because Christ is Lord, I'm willing to take the brunt, to have the accountability, to lead the way. And the other is saying, because Christ is Lord, I will have your back. And they're a team, they're a unit, and they're moving forward. So that's what it essentially means to submit. Now the husband's duty is to love his wife and not be bitter toward them. Now, this is reminiscent of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where the same writer, the Apostle Paul, was writing a letter to another church in, you know, not so far away in a geographical region. And he writes in Ephesians chapter 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
And this helps us understand what Paul is talking about when he says, love your wives. We're not talking about romantic love, although husbands, you should romanticize your spouse. We are talking about unmerited, self-sacrificing devotion to the well-being and satisfaction of your wife. Unmerited, self-sacrificing devotion to the well-being and satisfaction of the wife. Even though verse 19 is the second verse in this passage, it's always the first move in a godly marriage because loving your wife is not a response to her. It's leading her. It's the first step, the first step, which goes hand in hand with the duty to also not be bitter toward them. There's an interesting way of saying this also, which could be to not be irritable, meaning that husbands, when something happens that doesn't go your way, how do you react? How do you respond? Do you elevate yourself to the level of how things happen to you? Like if someone hurts you or says something to you that doesn't feel good, do you say something right back? That's what this is talking about. Bitterness is, is not being irritable. But the reality is that if we are called in christ in our marriage to have a self-sacrificing love, self-sacrificing love cannot coexist with retaliation. The two can't both be true. And so the call is to live away from irritability and toward self-sacrificing love. In God's design, there is an order to uh, to the, the home, to the family, where the husband's ultimately accountable for the family's way of life. But you've got to see, when we talk about this word submit and talk about this word love, you've got to understand that the instruction to the husband is not to exact control over the spouse, but to be an example of Christ to their spouse. In fact, the husband ought to be the clearest example of Jesus that the wife ever sees outside of the scripture. That's how heavy and weighty and big and also enjoyable and awesome this kind of relationship could be. This is how marriages flourish. Because when the love of Christ is present, no one can be devalued. It's impossible for the love of Christ to devalue anyone. The love of Christ is actually proof of God supremely valuing all people, both men and women. Now, we understand kind of this, the concept now, submit and love, not being bitter. We understand maybe the duty, and that probably is going to apply practically for you in all kinds of terms, but as I've brought up some like history and some terminology to kind of prove this point, if we're going to be honest about sort of our history, if we're going to be honest about the context of this passage, I think we also have to be honest about like our own failures as a, the, in the history of the church where this has not been rightly used. Because there have been Christian men in the past, unfortunately, who have used verses like this to justify their behavior toward their wives. But Colossians tells a different story. It's not about justifying your behavior toward your wife. The story that Colossians is telling us is that the way of Jesus is to reform our behavior in light of being justified by Christ toward God. 
you see the good news of Jesus that we put our faith in is the news that Jesus Christ can justify us before God. Meaning we can't justify ourselves. My Sunday school teacher in seventh grade said the word justify means just as if I'd never sin. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's what Jesus did towards us. When I put my faith in Christ, he justifies me before God, meaning God now sees me just as if I'd never sinned. That's an incredible reality to live in. And so we don't need to be, to be living as if we have to justify our behavior using a Bible verse toward our spouse that may be bad behavior. Instead, we've got to live toward our spouse in light of being justified by Christ toward God. It's a whole new way of living. And this is the story of Colossians 3. It's what we're going to see over and over again. If your vertical relationship with God has been transformed by grace through faith in Christ, your horizontal relationships will follow suit. So this is scene one, the Christ-centered marriage. Now remember our Viewmaster? Scene two, okay? The Christ-centered parenting. Here's what verse 20 uh, and 21 say. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Usually get like an amen or a hallelujah there sometime. I don't know, some of you parents. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. So if marriage is a lesson in humility, parenting is a masterclass, right? Because it's one thing to live with someone who's nothing like you, and that's a difficult thing, but it's a whole other thing to live with someone who's exactly like you, okay? It's like, it's, it's infuriating sometimes. But how we respond to our kids and how our kids live in the home, it matters to human flourishing the way God designed and desires us to live. Our best is found when children obey their parents in everything and parents don't exasperate their children, but rather encourage them. So children are to obey their, obey their parents in everything. Uh, my childhood pastor, who was an incredible pastor and preacher, he preached this passage and he said, obey your parents. And then he would like raise his voice. He'd go, obey your parents. <laughs> but if there's kids in the room, I, I don't want to yell at you, <laughs> but I do want to show you that you are given instruction in the family because God values you. God loves you. God sees you as important. Now kids, if you're in the room, what you need to understand is that in the world that the Bible was written, kids didn't have value. Kids weren't important. Kids didn't get things that they wanted or sometimes even needed. But Jesus changed that. Jesus values children and he loves you and sees you and he wants the best for you and he wants to lead your parents in the same way. So kids, God cares about you. Jesus often gave children the place of honor, the place of value. He's often seen, seen giving Jesus, Jesus give, giving children an audience with himself when adults thought maybe the children should be pushed away. So Jesus draws children to himself, but he also gives them value by giving them instruction. And the instruction is children, obey your parents. Like, listen to them. 
you know, take their wisdom. Do the things they're asking you to do and just, just do them and make, you know, make it easy on your parents, right? Be habitually obedient. Like every time, every day, everything, nothing's exempt. If your parent says, then you do it. Now, just like wives submitting to husbands, children obeying your parents, there's a quick note here is that these things have been abused, okay? And whenever someone like a parent or a spouse wants to lead you or require something of you that's ungodly or hurtful, we uh, give our allegiance to God first. And so those are relationships where you need to find help from someone else. And so that something godly can happen there because God isn't for abuse in those relationships, okay? I just wanna make that note. Just to go, even though we're talking about submit and obedience, that doesn't necessarily mean living into something that's not godly. But God's desire is for parents to lead these children to a place where obedience is easy and it's habitual because children are supremely valued in the kingdom of God. Not only is there instruction to obey, but there's also this instruction to parents to give kids the gift of loving authority and instruction loving authority and instruction to lead them in a way that makes obedience easy and habitual. Here's the deal. Kids know what they want. Now, it might change from second to second, and it may appear completely irrational, but kids know what they want. Parents who follow Jesus are to lead children to what they need, to what they need. And so naturally, there's conflict between these two ideals, and that is where disobedience happens. But the goal is not simply obedience. The goal is heart change. Heart change for our kids. We want our children to want to be pleasing to the Lord. Did you catch that in the verse? Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. We want our kids in their hearts to want to be pleasing, not just to us, but to God. That's the ultimate goal. So parents, he says, don't exasperate your children. Like bending a twig, making sure you stop before it breaks. One author said, don't overcorrect. This is a translation. Don't overcorrect, okay? I don't know if you've driven like country roads in East Texas, but there's a good chance if you have, you've come fairly close to hitting a deer. Hopefully you haven't. But you know, something like a deer or I don't know, a tire or a refrigerator that happens to be in the road. I don't know, there's all kinds of crazy things that happen on country roads in East Texas. You never know, okay? But what happens when you have to swerve away from something, that's not the most dangerous part of the whole thing. The most dangerous part of this whole thing is when you correct yourself after the swerve, okay? So kids often kind of throw us off as parents. I've got a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. I often am having to correct, and unfortunately, I'm often overcorrecting, so I need God's grace as much as you do. But here's the deal. We overcorrect, and that can, that's what sends us rolling. And so he says, don't overcorrect. In, in other words, don't let your disciplinary reactions be greater in severity than your children's disobedient actions. Man, you got to think about that for a second. Kid does something wrong, and I fly off the handle? Do I care more about their heart 
Or do I care more about what they've just done? Do I care more about who they're becoming or who they are? See, it calls us here when it says don't, don't, don't fall into this trap of, of making your kids discouraged. It's essentially saying be an encourager. In your parenting, be an encourager. Uh, like, be careful that your correction is for the benefit of their heart. So you have to kind of ask yourself the question, how would your parenting be different if you respond to your children based on who you are leading them to become rather than who they naturally sinfully are? That's parenting that leads a children's heart, a child's heart. See, discipline can only go so far in Christian parenting. And I think a lot of times people assume Christian parents are the strictest. Like we put the most rules and regulations on our kids. But let me just tell you, discipline can only go so far in Christian parenting. All parents deal with disobedience. We know this. But when Christ is the Lord of the parents, a child's disobedience is an indicator of their need for discipleship to Jesus just as much as it is d discipline. When a child is disobedient, that's an indicator. Their heart is not quite there yet. It's a need for discipleship just as much as it is discipline. And so this is God's design, his desire for your family, that your family would flourish as you as a parent commit yourself both to leading in discipleship to Jesus, modeling discipleship to Jesus, correcting out of discipleship to Jesus, and loving discipline. So in 2023, this is just a big push in our church. We're spending this whole year calling it the Homefront Initiative, teaching us ourselves as we, as we practice some you know, disciplines and we do some challenges together to have Christ-centered homes. And right now we're doing what's called a daily formation challenge where we know if we're gonna have Christ as the center of our home, it starts with, it starts with us, it starts with me. And so we've challenged you and ourselves to actually spend daily time in reading the Bible and prayer that we would be formed into becoming more like Christ so that our relationships would then also follow suit. But in March and April, we're gonna do an interesting challenge for families, grandparents, parents, even families, households without kids. This will be great for you too. But the challenge is gonna be a family devotional challenge. So once a week, for about 15 minutes or so, over the course of a couple months, we're gonna ask you, challenge you to lead your family in a devotional a 15-minute devotional, and we're going to give you the tools to do it, the resources, some content to do it, and some, uh, some techniques and things like that. And probably after the first couple, we're all going to be like, wow, that was terrible, but then we're just sort of going to, going to accept God's grace and keep growing in it, right? And so that's the family devotional challenge. It's coming up here in a couple months. Right alongside that, we're going to be doing some things as a congregation, equipping parents to become disciple makers in their home because we believe parents are on the front lines of discipleship in their home. Uh, the church is just here as a partner. Like we can just like sort of nudge along, but, but we only get an hour a week, maybe sometimes two, where parents, you know, you get a lot, a lot more time with your kids than that. And so we want to equip parents to be disciple makers in their home. And then we're actually going to celebrate parents who take that step 
to be equipped and to commit themselves to discipling their children. We're going to commission them, just like we would commission a missionary who's going off to Timbuktu to tell someone about Jesus. We're actually, as a church, going to celebrate kids and parents, parents who are committing to disciple their children, to tell their children and teach their children about Jesus. And so that's gonna be a big deal later this spring. And so you have a chance to go, okay, I may not be there right now as a Christ-centered parent, but by God's grace, I wanna live into this reality because this is the story again of Colossians 3. If your vertical relationship with God has been transformed by, by grace through faith in Christ, your horizontal relationships will follow suit. Okay, finally, last scene. Right, scene three, Christ-centered work. A few more verses here, starting in verse 22, chapter three. Paul writes, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart. There's something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. The wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he's done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. Now again, just like wives submit, children obey, slaves? Like, is the Bible condoning slavery? What are we doing? This doesn't make sense to us in our context. Well, let me just tell you that for starters, this is a much different kind of slavery than the kind we think about uh, when we think of slavery. These are bond servants. Bond servants, people who voluntarily worked to pay off debts, uh, to have their basic needs met, to be included in a household, maybe when they had none of their own, uh, even among people they maybe not have been related to. Uh, now, this doesn't condone slavery. It just sort of actually explains the reality of it. Uh, slaves were considered property, just like women, just like children. So we're not condoning. The Bible's in no way condoning this. Uh, but, you know, it's just explaining the reality. Some slaves were even professional people, like teachers, doctors. Historians estimate between 20 and 50% of the Roman Empire, walking down the street in the Roman Empire, anybody you might see, 20 to 50%, that's like, if I see four people, then one or two of those people are going to be slaves. Bond servants. Again, not to condone slavery, but to explain the reality of it and to show how radically different the gospel is. How Jesus redeems people from this. See, slavery was still an abuse of humanity. It still devalued people. And it was outside of the will of God. So why didn't the New Testament writers just unequivocally deny or you know, reject slavery? Why didn't they take a stand against all forms of slavery? Well, they were messengers of the good news of Jesus Christ. They were evangelists. They were missionaries. They were church planters. They didn't see themselves as social reformers. So here's how this happened. These men who wrote the New Testament, their method was to start with the gospel and let the gospel do its work. Here's the cool thing. It did. 
the principles, spiritual principles that came with the lordship of Jesus are the very same principles that ultimately destroyed that type of slavery in ancient cultures. It doesn't exist anymore because of Jesus. Jesus did that. And Jesus, who equally and supremely values all people, will one day destroy all forms of slavery. And that's the Jesus we follow. And that's the Jesus who invites us into, uh, to participate in that work through the gospel. So yeah, they didn't just take a stand against it. They did more than that. They did something better than that. They allowed the gospel to do its work. And it did. This is part of God's bigger story. From creation, where everything was the way he intended it to be, to when humanity sinned and rejected and rebelled against God, but that God all along had a loving plan for a rescuer and that Jesus Christ would come and be the sacrifice for sin so that he would not see people as sinful, but then people by faith could be restored in their relationship with God, leading to the end of the story, which is where all things will be redeemed and restored to the way God intended it. That's where we're heading now, that's a huge story, but when we clicked in our Viewmaster into Colossians 3.22 through chapter 4, verse 1, we actually see a much more personal scene. It's not just about the big story. It's about you and the personal responsibility you can take to see growth in Christ and the world change because of the lordship of Jesus. Now, you don't have slaves and you don't have masters, but you do have a boss and Lord willing, a job. Maybe you're an employee. Maybe you're an employer. And this is totally applicable that we ought to treat our work differently in light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So, what does it mean to be a Christ centered employer or a Christ centered employee? What are the duties of each? Well, the duty of the employee is to work diligently with integrity. I love the definition of integrity that is. It's who you are when no one's looking. Who you are when no, one, when no one's looking. Now, people are looking all the time now, right? I mean, we got cell phones, we got security cameras, we got, uh, you know, algorithms and artificial intelligence. Like, people are just always looking. But that doesn't take away the spiritual reality here. Jesus even affirms this in the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about prayer and fasting. He says, whatever you do in secret, the Lord will see you. God the Father in heaven will see you and reward you. And so even approaching your work with integrity and diligence is a way that we live into the flourishing life that God designed for us. And you go, my job's hard. Yeah, I mean, this was written to people who were not even seen as people, who were owned by somebody. And so you can take this and apply it fairly easily. The same principle is true of your work, right? Regardless of your position, regardless of your pay, work with diligence and integrity. Work as for the Lord and not for man. The cool thing about this is that this is a promise. It's a promise to the organizational downline. It's a promise to the downtrodden. It's a promise to the down on your luck. Because of Jesus, your eternal reality is not your current reality. You may be in a position that stinks. You may be unemployed. You may be in a position that your time is being abused. You're not getting paid for the work you're doing. 
You may be in a position that has any number of other kinds of abuses. And the good news here is just a reminder that the work you do now, do it with integrity and diligently because that does not define your reality. Your eternal reality is this good news. Remember the big picture that God restores all things and redeems all things and he makes everything new again? Your eternal reality is that through faith in Jesus, you're adopted into God's family as a son and daughter. Bible even says that you become an heir to God, that you will inherit what God has, and that all things will be restored and made right, even bad bosses and bad jobs, etc. You'll get to live in the reality that God spoke to Adam, the very first man, before sin entered the world, when God said to him, you'll have dominion over the earth. You'll get to experience that, believer in Jesus. And so as you see life through the lens and work through the lens of the lordship of Jesus, remember it may be bad right now, but this is just a temporary reality. Your eternal reality is reigning with Jesus, dominion over all things, enjoying God and creation fully. That's the path to fullness. So we don't work from who my boss says I am. I work from who God says I am. That's the employee. The duty, the duty of the employer is to be just and fair because they're under the lordship of Jesus in the same way as anyone else who's not a boss. right? So bosses, employers. A manager misses the mark when they see themselves as a master. That's when a manager slips into sinfulness. Uh, a manager, instead of being the master, the employer's role is to be a reflection of the one true master, Jesus Christ. And so if you're an employer in the room, you have a responsibility, even a greater burden of reality, to be a reflection of Jesus to the people who work for you. What's the story that your management tells about the lordship of Jesus Christ and who Jesus truly is? This is the story of Colossians 3. Again, that if your vertical relationship with God has been transformed by grace through faith in Christ, your horizontal relationships will follow suit. But I wanna just point out a couple things in this passage that really help bring it home. Did you notice that in each scene we walked through, Paul starts with who the world would consider the weaker person in the relationship? He starts with women. Started with children, started with slaves. Now, a couple things are happening here. First, I just want to make note that the order in the way it was written was a signal of value. A signal of value. So while nobody else may see you as a person, you're just in a sea of people, God sees you as a person. He values you supremely. No matter your age, no matter your station in life, you or created by him in his image, and he loves you and values you, and he sees you. So if you don't feel seen today, you should just know that that's not true. God sees you and values you, and he has grace for you. But what's fascinating about each of these scenes, marriage, parenting, work, looking through the lens of the supremacy of Jesus is that the truth that Jesus is Lord is literally the center of every relationship. I don't know if you saw this. It's the, 
Literally every relationship is built on the foundation of Jesus. In verse 18, it talks about wives, and then it says, uh, for this is fitting in the Lord. And then it says husbands. Uh, Verse 20 says, talk about children, obey your parents, because this pleases the Lord. And then it says parents. Verse 22 through 24 starts with talking about slaves, and then it says fearing the Lord as something done for the Lord. You serve the Lord. And then masters. And so you see how Jesus as Lord is literally central to every relationship that Paul describes here. Meaning that every relationship you're in tells a story about the Lordship of Jesus. The question is, what story does it tell? And as a Christ follower, as you move toward another person in any kind of relationship, you can know that one step toward that person has got to be a step on the foundation of the lordship of Jesus Christ and that that will change everything about how you move toward that person. Jesus wants to be the center of every relationship you have, not just important like other things, but supreme overall and central in all. This is the story that Colossians is telling. This is a life that God is leading us to. This is where flourishing begins in God's design and desire for our lives. I wanna pray for you and invite our worship team back to respond with one short song before we end today and give you a chance to let this sort of sink in and then maybe even ask God in your heart, now what am I gonna leave here with? Because this is a lot. This is like 10 sermons in one. So let me pray for you. And then we're gonna move into a time of response. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. I need it as a husband, a parent, an employee and an employer. I feel all that. I need your grace. I don't get it right. I'm so thankful, God, that you forgive me freely, that you're compassionate toward me, that you're kind toward me. Uh, God, you're slow to anger. I want to be like that toward others. I want to reflect Jesus, live toward other people the way he lives toward me. I pray that that would become true of every person here. As we see life through the lens of your lordship, your supremacy, God, thank you for inviting us into a way of life that's bigger than what we experience here, that's better than what we experience here, that's more eternal than what we experience here. We don't deserve to be part of your story, but you've brought us into your story and you give us a way to flourish in it. Even if it goes against culture, God, help us live into that. Help us experience what you want for our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.